It is good to have the Gainers back with us. Um, we've missed you, uh, Jared and Lindsay, your children. It's great to have little Brennan with us for the first time. I hope you'll get to see him this morning. I also want to welcome uh, Tina's mother and father, John and Shamala. Uh, they've come all the way from London, of course, to uh, see their grandson and probably have a little interest in their daughter as well. Um, we love them. They're very dear. I hope you get a little bit acquainted with them. We're very thankful for their presence with us. Just want to remind all the college and singles that tonight, Pastor Sam and Shar will be hosting uh, the Time of Fellowship, a great time. Starts at 7.30. I know that we have an event happening here tonight as well. But I hope that you college guys and girls will invite several of your friends Look forward to a great time at Pastor Sam's house. Let me ask you to go ahead and turn back to Psalm 71 if you haven't already done so. Roberta Rand, in an article published by Focus on the Family, entitled Loneliness and depression afflicting the elderly, writes the following. Old age is one of life's thresholds that few of us in midlife are emotionally and psychologically prepared for. We'd like to believe we'll never have to experience the full impact of time's whittling away of our bodies. We may stave off the symptoms of old age, with exercise and diet, or simply deny the facts by applying hair color and skin serums. But in fact, barring catastrophic illness, car accidents, or devastating acts of God, most of us, more than 90%, according to one statistic, will die incrementally of chronic diseases like diabetes, cancer, or hardening of the arteries. A comparison, a comparative few can't expect to go as we'd like at home, in our sleep, or from a sudden heart attack while doing a task we love. We avoid thinking about getting older because old age conjures up our worst fears, like being trapped in bed or a wheelchair, or being a burden, or losing our ability to think and reason, or being alone. Thus, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that depression is epidemic among the aged. According to one study, 20 to 25 percent of the elderly in nursing homes are clinically depressed. Every day in the United States, 17 adults over the age of 65, commit suicide, the highest suicide rate of any demographic group. And unlike younger people, those for whom an attempted suicide is more often a, quote, cry for help, elderly people who attempt suicide usually succeed. If the psalmist David, and he is very likely the one who penned this psalm, had owned a pistol in his weakest, most oppressive moments of life, he 
would never have loaded it and taken his life. If he owned a bottle of aspirin or had a car parked in a garage, he would never have used them to terminate his life. You know why? Because in his deepest depression, in his most discouraging hours, in his most fearful moments, when, for example, he had fallen into horrible sin, or when he was intensely hated by his enemies, or when he was fleeing for his life, even in the case of his son seeking to kill him, when living the life of a refugee, when aware that age was robbing him of his strength, you know what he did? He put himself in a place of hiding. An absolutely safe and secure fortress. A rock of refuge. And that place of hiding and that safe and secure fortress and that rock of refuge was a person. It was his gracious, righteous, omnipotent, promise-keeping, sin-forgiving, from danger-delivering, enemy-conquering, soul-restoring God. A God who began to be gracious to David from before his birth, who continued to be gracious to him in his birth and throughout all of his youthful years. And he tells us all about it in this 71st Psalm a psalm, surely, for the elderly. And it was recorded for us, sovereignly and graciously, by God the Holy Spirit through David, so that we too might have hope and comfort and consolation and confidence and peace and security and faith as we face and experience old age. So that we too, like David, might finish well. So that we, like David, might finish strong. This summer psalm series, which is now slipping into the fall, as you well know, was designed in part to demonstrate the emotional comfort that belongs to true believers. The person who understands and builds his life upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel about him. These psalms, as we have seen, speak to us about the whole range of Christian experience. And today's psalm brings to us the wonderful blessing of security. Now, just before we look at Psalm 71, a word about who actually are the elderly? Maybe you've already wondered. You looked at the title of the sermon on the bulletin, and you've wondered, well, who are the elderly? It's hard to say, isn't it? Anyone who is a parent to little children knows that they, the parents, are considered to be elderly by their children. What is an elderly person? Is it someone over 40? Is it 55 and above? Is it 65 and above? Is it 70 
and over? Or is it when you start to have aches and pains? If that's the case, then many among us are already elderly. Is it when your first few steps out of bed in the morning or your first few steps out of the car on a trip and you make a pit stop? Is it when those first few steps are characterized by, oh, oh, and you have to take, you know, five or six steps and you start to limber up a little bit? Is that the sign of old age? Is it when you have to take ibuprofen or a leave every day of your life so that your joints don't hurt? It's hard to answer these questions. In fact, as I wrestled with the title of the sermon, I almost called it a rock of refuge for the aging. Because growing older is something that all of us are experiencing. Who among us today is not getting older? Even children are getting older. Who among us, in that sense of the term, is not aging? All of us are aging. Being old is a bit nebulous, and it surely is relative. But we all see it coming, and many of us know that it's close or it has already begun. Think through our own congregation, and I have thought through it several times this week. Think about some of our dear sisters. Sister Marge is definitely an elderly person, and so is Faith. Faith and Marge, to my knowledge, are the only two sisters who are in their 90s. They're 91. Hard to believe. Recently, our dear sister Von Seal, who went to be with the Lord, was 85. Maury and Opal are older. And behind them come people like the Bluers, who I'm sure are watching this morning and joining us, John and Nancy, Harold, Betty Mae, Bill and Martha, Russ and Wilma. I know I'm working downward. I understand that. Bill and Shannon Rose, Diane and Ted, Larry and Evelyn, Tim and Camilla, Sam and Char. I know we're not where Faith and Marge are, but we're not far behind them. And may none of us, maybe none of us are willing to say, uh, I am an old person, and perhaps that's okay, but we know where we are headed. And even though this congregation is relatively young, in fact, shockingly young when you do the numbers, we have elderly people among us, and we need to be aware of them. And this message is designed to encourage us. Now, honesty requires us to face this fact that old age, becoming an elderly person, brings with it many unique challenges and temptations. Temptations to succumb to discouragement. So let's be realistic for just a moment. There are physical ailments, aren't there? And infirmities, sight, hearing, memory, aches, pains, weaknesses, loss of strength, shortness of breath, loss of teeth, difficulty sleeping, 
And yes, when you look in the mirror, loss of looks, if you ever had them. (laughs) Uh, Just a little story about loss of memory. Here's how it works. Thankfully, it isn't seemingly a critical problem in my life at this point. But it goes like this. You're ready to go to church, and you ask your wife to drive. And just before you go, you make a slice of toast and put some peanut butter on it and some some raspberry jam. And you go out to your car, and you open the passenger door, and you set your piece of toast. (laughs) You know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) You set it on the seat. And you say, I'll pick that up in just a minute, and you put your books in the back, and you get in the car, and you sit on your peanut butter and jelly, and you say to your wife, where's the toast? <laughs> I said, oh, I hope I didn't sit on that. And I get out of the car, and, and sure enough, my whole back end is covered with peanut butter and jelly. And we go in the house, and I bend over. And my wife takes a wash rag and washes my, let me use the sophisticated word, my buttocks. For those of you who don't know, that would be my butt. Why why didn't I think when I put my books in the back, hey, that toast is there, make sure you pick that up. Those are the kinds of things. That's humorous. Um, And we laugh, do we not, from time to time about our memories and so forth. But, you know, the sad fact is that everyone, sooner or later, begins to struggle with memory. It's part of the deterioration of the brain. It's part of the dying process. And these are the kinds of discouragements that elderly people have to deal with. And in addition to physical ailments, there is the burden of perhaps an ailing or invalid spouse. And there's the challenge of being weary and tired as the primary caregiver. And then comes the losing of the spouse. And then the losing of many friends. And then the losing of mobility. And then losing independence and losing pleasure and losing usefulness and experiencing loneliness. And looking at a fearful and changing world. And worrying that you're going to become a burden to your own children. And then staring death as it looms right in the eyes. These are depressing prospects. These are difficulties that elderly people have to face. Can such things really be faced and experienced without fear and without depression? That's the question. Can they be faced with joy and confidence? And the answer is a resounding yes. If we know and trust David's God. True Christians do not only die better than non-Christians, True Christians go through old age better than non-Christians. Not only do they endure it, but they excel and they shine brightly in their older age. Like wine that gets better with age, such Christians get better and have much to offer in the service of God. And I just want to remind those of you who are older and perhaps are ready to conclude, I, I can't be useful to God anymore. Abraham was a hundred years old 
when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90. Moses was 80 when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Caleb was 85 when he wanted to capture the mountain. Zacharias and Elizabeth were advanced in years. And John the Apostle was approximately 90 years old when he wrote the book of Revelation. Well, let's look at this psalm and let's see what it teaches us about facing old age and remaining useful and joyful. And since we're all getting older, I've already made that point, and we're all going to have to face old age, let's all, including children and young people, let's all see what we can learn. Now, this is a difficult psalm to outline, believe me. And when you read the commentators, you find that none of them outlined this psalm in the same way. And it's also somewhat lengthy, and I'm going to tell you right now that I'm not going to deal in any kind of detail with every verse. In fact, I will not deal with every verse. If we could compare Psalm 71 to a mountain range, my purpose this morning is to see some of the major peaks and to encourage you. But I will attempt a sort of outline. I'm going to tell you what strikes me as being helpful. I think there's sort of two major parts in this Psalm verses 1 through 13, we have what I'm going to uh, describe as a troubled soul pleading, a troubled soul pleading. David's troubled. There's no doubt about it. He's very troubled. And he's pleading with God about his trouble. And then when we come to verse 14, there's a conjunction, you'll notice, It starts with but, and so there's a contrast, and there's a huge shift taking place here, even in emotion. And I submit that from verses 14 through 24, we have a triumphant soul prophesying. And I put that word in quotation marks, and I'll explain that when we come to that point. So a troubled soul pleading and a triumphant soul prophesying. And then it does seem to me that in each of those major sections, there are two smaller sections, but I don't want to trouble you too much with it. I'm just going to use the word confidence and the word contrition with regard to the first section. So let's take a look at that. Verses 1 through 13, a troubled soul pleading. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to ask you to look and see if he is confident. Does he have confidence? If so, what is his confidence or who is his confidence in? And then before that section is over, you will see, though, that he is very contrite in his troubled soul, and he has to plead for some things in his contrition. So notice, what is his problem? Well, it's a problem that most of us don't have this morning, and in that sense, it's sort of a challenge to preach on older age when the emphasis of this psalm is really on David being very, very troubled with his enemies. In fact, when I first read it, and it was suggested to me that I preach a psalm for older people, I thought, wow, this is so much about David being pursued by his enemies. And that's true. But it's about David, an older man, facing this trouble, this plight. So, okay, none of us here perhaps are troubled right now in any peculiar way with enemies. That's, that's okay, because 
what David found to help him and to console him in the midst of his unique dilemma is what helps us and consoles us in the midst of whatever may be troubling it. It doesn't have to be an enemy. But just let me show you how uh, troubled he was and, and how we may and have to conclude that he was a very troubled soul. In verse 1, he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Refuge. What is refuge? It's a place of safety. Let me never be put to shame. Why are you worried about that, David? Because there are people who are trying to shame me. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. David needs deliverance. He needs rescue. He needs salvation. He says, God, verse 3, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me. Now, God, make that command good. Make it realized in my life. You are my rock and my fortress. I need a place of safety to hide in. Rescue me, O my God, verse 4, from the hand, and now notice, of the wicked. (coughs) He speaks of the wicked, and in that same verse, he speaks of the unjust, and he speaks of the cruel man. And then a little later, he describes those who are seeking to do him harm as his enemies and as accusers. So you see, David's unique problem was the pursuit of enemies. But I want to make the point once more. Even though that may not be your unique problem this morning, as an older, aging person, there are enemies in your life. And there's some of the ones I mentioned. Your body's breaking down. You are losing your strength. You have some sickness. And the list goes on and on and on. I'm not going to repeat all of the infirmities that are common to older age. But in a sense, those are your enemies. And you, in your own unique way, need a place of refuge. You need a fortress. You need a hiding place. You need comfort. You need protection. And so we notice that the psalmist, and again, I'm certain that it's David, but I'm not going to take time to demonstrate why. The psalmist had great confidence in his God. The title of the sermon was A Rock of Refuge for the Elderly. Well, what is a rock of refuge? It's, it's a very strong place in which to find protection and safety. You know, um, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and almost all leaders of nations have bunkers under their palaces. The United States has one under the White House. It's a very relatively safe place uh, for protection. And in like manner, rocks that were hewn out, mountains that were hewn out, became places of hiding and places of security and fortresses and places of refuge. And David the psalmist is telling us, that's what God is to me. God's nature and his glory and his attributes and his commitment and his word to me are like a fortress. 
He is my rock of refuge. I go to him. I find hiding in him. He has complete confidence in God. Notice that right there in verse 1. He confesses, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. You're my hope. You're my security. You're my safety. I come to you for these things. And I want to be able to come continually to you for such protection, according to verse 3. So you see the confidence of the psalmist. Let me just say a word about righteousness. This is a key word. The word righteousness or righteous, those words are used five times in this psalm. I'm not going to look at all of them now, but you'll notice them as I read further in a few moments. This is a key word. This is probably not a reference to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us or put to our record when we trust in him. Although David had that righteousness, we're told in the book of Romans. I think David is referring to God's perfection of character, to his justice, to his truthfulness, to his faithfulness, to a God who cannot forever allow iniquity to triumph. And David is saying, as it were, to God, God, you're righteous You know that what's happening to me is unjust and wrong. I am your servant. I am the king of your people. I am hated without a cause. I am being pursued unjustly. Be to me, O righteous God, my refuge. Let your righteousness go into action on my behalf. And in that sense, be my my rescue. Be my fortress. So there's the confidence. God was righteous. God was his Savior. We've already seen you have given the command to save me in verse 3. God was his hope. God was his trust. And I want you to notice when this all began for him. And here's where we have reason to conclude that he must have at least been an older man. But he wasn't done yet. In fact, we'll see that at the end of the psalm. But notice verse Five, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. And then it's almost as he says, no, wait a minute. You were, you were my hope and my trust before then, God. Let me, let me confess that to you in verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. I mean, I was not conscious of it, but I depended upon you in the womb of my mother. From the moment of conception, in fact, from all eternity. You were committed to me. And then he speaks of the birth process itself in verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Wow, there's a good thing for you pregnant ladies and your husbands to pray about just before that birth takes place. Lord, we read in your word how you are the one who takes us from the womb of, of our mothers. We don't put our ultimate trust in our obstetrician. Oh, Lord, in these moments that lie before us, take this precious life from the womb. That's how David describes God's commitment to him. And so when, God, when David speaks about his confidence, he says, My confidence is in God because God has always been faithful to me. From even before my birth, during my birth, after my birth, all through my youth, I have reason to trust God. 
That's what he's saying. He knew that God was faithful. And obviously he knew that God was able to do these things or he wouldn't have prayed them. Why pray what God cannot do? David clearly believed in the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God. He had a God to believe upon. And for him, this God was a rock of refuge and a fortress. And I just want to pause long enough to ask all of us, especially those who are aging and who may qualify to be called elderly, do you have this God for your rock of refuge? Isn't it sad to go into nursing homes and to see that the largest percentage of the people who live in nursing homes have no such hope because they have no such knowledge? They don't know this God? How fearful death ought to be for them and the aging process. But I'm asking us, do we know this God? Do we have this God? Can we look back and say, um, from my youth, you have been faithful to me. No, from my very birth. And then you'll notice that starting with verses 8 and following, he's very contrite He's because he's deeply troubled. And he's so keenly aware of how desperately he needs God to rescue him. And in verse 9, um, he it's as, it's as if he's saying, God, you've been faithful to me my whole life. Before my birth, during my birth, after my birth, all through my youth, and now, God, I'm an old man. Please don't now cast me off in the time of old age. God, I confess to you that my strength is waning. It seems to have been spent. It's the latter part of verse 9. Now I desperately need you. And again, he goes back to speak about his enemies in verses 10. And what they're saying about him, they're saying, you know, David's God forsook him. So we can get him. Let's go get him. Let's seize him. There's nobody to deliver him. He doesn't have any friends. And David says, God, you, you hear what they're saying. Please, please be near me. Don't be far from me. Hurry. Come quickly. Make haste for my help. My accusers are trying to put me to shame. They're trying to disgrace me. And so he's a contrite man. Well, that's the first part. I think there's sort of a major division there. You do see, surely you would agree with me. This is a troubled man. This is a troubled soul pleading with God. Now, let me suggest to you that the troubled soul becomes a triumphant soul, um, not pleading in the same kind of desperate way, but in a sense prophesying. I told you to put quotation marks around the word prophesying. Um, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm convinced because I know who God is and because I have prayed to God and because God has committed himself to me and because God has spoken promises to me in his word. This is what I know is going to happen. And he and he in that sense speaks well of his future. I want you to especially notice the wills. The I wills. I underlined them in verse 14. I will hope in verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. In fact, I'm going to do that all day long. And when I do it, I'm going to find out that their numbers pass my knowledge. And then in verse 14. I'm going to come be 
before God in worship, I will come. It's, it's obvious that he's talking about to the place of worship. And what are you going to do there, David? I'm going to remind my fellow believers of all of those kindnesses and mercies and deeds that God has done on my behalf. I'm going to remind them that you are a righteous God. And then if you go to uh, verse 18, again, he says, so even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me. It's, it's a plea yet. But notice, until I proclaim your might to another generation. I'm going to probably say this again to those of you who are older and to all of us who are aging. Listen, one of the greatest things that we can possibly do with whatever days or hours we have left in our life is this. This is what David was busy with. You go to David, you visit him in a nursing home or wherever, and you say, say, what's, what, what's up with your life now? What are you going to do with your life? He's going to say, I don't have anything to do anymore. I'm utterly, absolutely worthless. David's going to say, no, I'm very busy with this. I am trying to declare God's might to the next generation. I'm speaking about the mighty deeds of God on my behalf. That's what I'm going to do. But you see, he's confident about this. And then if you go to verse 20, you start seeing the, the you wills. God, that's what I'm sure is going to happen in my life. But I'm also sure about things you're going to do. That's what I'm going to do by your grace. But I believe you're going to do some things. And look at verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities. By the way, did you notice that? You, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities. Does your theology incorporate a sovereign God over your troubles? If it doesn't, who do you turn to in your times of trouble? God is the one who has ordained these things in our lives, and David confesses that. But upon confessing it, he says, You who have made me see troubles and calamities will revive me again. That's what you're going to do, God. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. I don't believe this is a, uh, a confession rooted in faith that someday he would die and be buried and a great resurrection would take place and he too would be raised from the dead. I don't believe that's what he's referring to because I think what he's really referring to is a restoration of the glory and the authority and the respect that he had temporarily lost. Uh, Actually, many people believe that he wrote this while Absalom was pursuing him, his own son seeking to kill him. And David was running. David was fleeing. David was in the wilderness. David was in mountains. But he prays to God and he believes God is going to be faithful to his promises. And he says, God, you are going to revive me again from the depths of the earth. You'll bring me up. And notice, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I don't think that's a reference to the final resurrection. It's a reference to his restoration. He's not done yet. He's older. He's experiencing the weakness that comes with old age. But he believes that God still has work for him to do. And then notice verse 22 is another I will. I will praise you. I will sing praises. My lips will shout for joy when I sing and my tongue will. I'm just reading through those verses. I didn't identify all of them. So what, do, you, do you agree with me? 
Do you think that there's a change in mood? Really? I mean, could you read Psalm 71? And I said, just, just kind of give me the mood, the feeling. How's David feeling in the first 13 verses? You're going to say, he's very troubled. He's very concerned. He's on the run. He's got confidence in God. But this guy's doing some serious praying. He's saying, deliver me, God. Come to my rescue. Don't forsake me. I need you. And it's as if in the midst of praying, and doesn't this happen to us? It should. It's as if God comes to us and says, and we almost hear it by faith, I will. I'm on my way. I'm going to keep my word. You know I'm going to take care of you. You know I'll be faithful to you. You know I gave the command to save you. I'm not going to forsake you in your old age and your gray hair. And as we feel that, we begin to rise, as it were, from the troubled state of our souls in a, in, a, in a faith of triumph. God, I am going to praise you again. I am going to speak of you. You are going to restore me. And so that's what happens. And again, there are two things here, but I'm not going to break it down further. There's... Uh, his commitment in verses 14 through 21. But I do want you to see the second thing and not trying to confuse your mind. Remember, I just said there's sort of two parts. Each part may have two subparts. But I really want to show you the last three verses of this psalm because under this um, triumphant soul prophesying, he speaks of celebration. He says in verse 22, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. Oh, my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre. Oh, holy one of Israel, my lips will shout for joy. There's another one of those 20 or so shoutings for joy found in the Psalms. But notice, it's connected with singing again, okay? So I'm not saying, you know, by the way, this wasn't my purpose, and I would never plan on saying this. Sometimes someone may say something, thank you, Lord, praise you, Lord Jesus, hallelujah, at the end of a phrase. That's a form of shouting for joy. That's okay. But notice that not only here, but in other places, we shout for joy in our singing. And that's one reason why I want to encourage this congregation to use volume when it's appropriate. We're not trying to be loud to be loud. But there are times when we want to be loud because it's just so wonderful. We, do, we, can't, we can't contain ourselves. And David said, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. Because you see, he's confident that God is going to deal with his enemies, with those who seek to do him harm. You have enemies. They're not just the, the enemies of um, infirmity, of physical infirmity. They're the enemies of your soul, the devil, and the world, and ungodly people. And they want to bring you down. But you're going to triumph over all of them. In your older age, you're still going to triumph because God is your God. Now, having done that, let me just quickly give you some applications. And I conclude. 
I have applications for, and that was such a superficial treatment, I grant you. But I would encourage you to read this psalm this afternoon and read it meditatively and pray over each verse and find encouragement. But having treated it in in sort of an overview fashion, could I just give some applications now to three categories of people? And the first category of people, believe it or not, is young people. I thought this psalm was for older people. Well, it, it has a unique application to older people. But did any of you see the word youth? I see the word youth in verse 5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. And then if you go over to verse 17, O God, from my youth, you have taught me. David had an experience with God when he was young. When he was young. You children and young people can have an experience with God now. You don't have to wait to become an older person. David came to believe and trust in God as a very young man. And you can come to believe and trust in God as a very young man or woman, as a young child. All you boys and girls, now I'm talking to the really young, all you have to know in order to be truly saved, is that you are really a sinner. That you have broken God's will hundreds and thousands of times. And that that's rebellion. And you're in trouble with God. Because God is holy and just and he has to punish you for your sins. You've got to know that. And if mom and dad or Pastor Ted or anyone else comes to you and says, do you think you're a sinner? And you say, yeah, I'm a sinner. And they say, what are some of your sins? And you have to go like, hmm, hmm. And you can't think of any? Then you can't trust in Jesus yet as your Savior because you don't feel your need of him. But if boys and girls, if you know you're sinful and you know God is going to have to punish you for your sins and you know that he provided a substitute to take that punishment, his son, the Lord Jesus, who never sinned, and he punished him in the place of sinners and that you can give your sins by faith to Jesus and he takes that punishment and he gives you his perfect righteousness. If you can understand that Just in a limited way, you can trust in Jesus right now to be your Savior. And then you will be able to say, from my youth, you have been faithful to me, O God. Because that's when you will enter into a relationship with God and he will take care of you. So I'm saying, dear children and young people, strive to have this testimony. Seek God, and he will be found. Trust in Jesus, and he will take your sins and make you righteous. And I also just want to say to you young people, a completely different kind of category. You know, you should honor and respect the elderly people who are in your life. It's funny how little children sometimes don't like to talk to big grown-ups and particularly older people. And they're sort of afraid of them. And they have no reason to be afraid of them. Because older people love little children. 
They, there's nothing that makes older people happier than to be around little children. It's, it's a form of therapy in the nursing homes to bring little children, kindergartners, out of public schools into nursing homes so that the elderly can see little children. It cheers them up. Boys and girls, you can talk to older people. You should know who the names of older people are. You should say hello. Hi, Mrs. Reed. How are you today? Hi, Mrs. Kaysen. You should know. And mom and dad, you should teach your children to respect and honor the older people. You should tell them who they are. You should go with them and help them to be friendly. You should break that ice with them. You should teach your children how to grow up valuing the wisdom and the counsel and the experience and the dignity of older people. Do that, mom and dad. Because children can be a great encouragement to the elderly. And the elderly can teach you so much because they've had so much experience. A word to parents very quickly. And I've already sort of exhorted you, but mom and dad, would you do everything in your earthly power to help your children come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior as young as possible? I know you can't save your kids, but you can bring them to the Savior by prayer in a sense. We need to be, as parents, as desperate as those, those friends were of the paralyzed man who tore the roof apart and lowered their friend down, probably with ropes at the feet of Jesus, because they knew he had, they had to get him to Jesus. We can't believe for our children, but we can plead for our children. We can teach our children. We can talk to our children. We can, we can carry on communication and Dads, this is especially your responsibility, although moms have a unique opportunity as well in the home. But dads, are you embarrassed to talk to your kids about their souls? Is it awkward for you to go in the bedroom and pray with your children and say, Honey, do you think you're trusting Jesus yet? Do you know why Jesus died? Do you understand what he was doing on the cross? Is there a man in this room or in the overflow room that can't do that with his children? And the reason why I'm saying it is because we want our children to be able to say what David said. From youth, God, you have watched over me and taken care of me. So teach your children their need of the Savior and teach them how to respect elders and to encourage and learn from them. And then finally, just this word now back to the, the focus of this sermon was designed to encourage the elderly. Whoever you are. Those of you who are either elderly or fast approaching older age, and I showed you the category and only began to name those of us who are fast approaching older age. See to it. Let me put it this way. Rather, look at your old age as a gift from God. A gift from God. He has allowed you to live this long. He has said to you, I am going to preserve your life and demonstrate my faithfulness to you all of these years so that you can reflect my glory as an older person, so that you can proclaim my name, so that you can speak of my mighty deeds, so that you can reflect upon my righteousness, so that you 
can tell the next generation about me. That's my gift to you, says God, to everyone who is older and who knows the Lord. It's a gift. See your older age, not as a curse, but as a gift. You realize that you have, many of you have walked with the Lord far longer than most of the people in this assembly? Don't you just love to talk to elderly Christians who, who have walked with God? You know, my eyes just fell on Tim, and it made me think, and I thought of his mom and dad actually in the sermon, uh, in sermon preparation. I think of my mother-in-law, who, who knew the Lord and wanted to be with him. And I think of Von Seal, and Pastor Keith and I know that, she wanted to um, not be a burden to her family and longed to be with the Lord. But when you had an opportunity to talk to people like Dot Hoke or Keith Hoke, wasn't it, wasn't it wonderful? <laughs> Just wonderful. Listen, older people, you've got something to say. You've got someone to talk about. You've got a record to, um, to share. You've got some stories. You've got some wisdom. You've got some influence. You've got a ministry. And I want to say again, your life is not over. If your heart is still beating and your lungs are still breathing, God has a purpose for you. He wants you to speak on his behalf. He's kept you alive for his glory. You are a choice gift to this church. You are a gift to this world. Your age is a gift to you. Use it for God's glory. And and you are far more of a blessing than you have any idea. And always remember, dear older brothers and sisters, God has ordained your present troubles, but he's seen you through them, hasn't he? As we saw in verse 20. And so just keep, this is what I want to say to you, keep praising. Look at verse 6. We're going back to the first part. Upon you I have leaned from before my youth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb, my praise is continually of you, continually. Look at verse 8. My mouth is filled with your praise. Look at verse 14. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Look at verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. Look at verse 16. With the mighty deeds of the Lord will I come. I will remind them, my fellow believers, of those mighty deeds. Look at verse 17. O God, from my youth you have taught me. I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Look at verse 18. So even in old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Look at verse 24. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help. This is what you're to do. You are to speak of God. And in that sense, Christians don't retire. Christians spend every living day of their life seeking to glorify God. This is, this is my conclusion then. Maybe some of you, I hope many of you have said, so where does Christ come into this? How do you preach Christ from Psalm 71? I think there perhaps are lots of ways, but I just want to give you two. One of them is this. 
It is because of him that God is our refuge. If you try to go to God outside of Christ, you get burned up. God is a consuming fire. God is a holy God. But if you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, he is your refuge. Jesus died in our place so that God the Father could be our refuge. And the psalmist trusted in the coming Redeemer. That's where Christ comes in. There is no refuge apart from Jesus Christ. In one sense, he is our refuge. In another sense, his Father is our refuge. And the second thing I want to say in that regard is this, that um, here we have the psalmist praying that God would not forsake him. Did any of you think of this? I'll bet some of you did. I bet some of you thought of this. David didn't want to be forsaken. We don't want to be forsaken. But in order for us not to be forsaken, someone had to be forsaken. God must forsake us if he didn't forsake his son. And while Jesus hung on the cross and took the sins of the world upon himself, God forsook him. God abandoned him. And he felt it and he cried out and expressed it while on the cross. And I just want to remind you that the reason why we can pray, God, please don't forsake me in my old age and when my hair turns gray. Please don't forsake me. Faith should hear him say, I won't forsake you. I don't have to forsake you anymore. Because I forsook my son on your behalf. So there's how Christ comes in. God promises his old people the same comfort through the prophet Isaiah. This is what he said. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, you who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age and to gray hair, I will carry you. I have made and will bear. I will carry and will save. That's God's promise to us. There was an old martyr by the name of Polycarp. And when Polycarp was asked to recant his faith, and by the way, he was one of the disciples of John the Apostle. There's good historical evidence to that effect. This is what we're told. At the age of 86, Polycarp, the second century pastor of the Church of Smyrna, was summoned before the Roman proconsul. There he was ordered to take an oath, renouncing Christ and claiming allegiance to Caesar. Polycarp responded, Eighty-six years I have served the Lord Jesus. He has been faithful to me. How can I be faithless to him and blaspheme the name of my Savior? Enraged, the proconsul sent a messenger to the city of Smyrna to proclaim that Bishop Polycarp had committed high treason against Rome by admitting to be being a Christian. A bloodthirsty mob gathered in the arena of the city. There they built a pyre of boards and planks while they clamored that Polycarp be handed over to them. They had brought nails to fasten Polycarp's hands and feet to the stakes. Polycarp then uttered these famous words, put away those nails. Let them be. The one who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake. You threaten me 
with a fire that burns for a short time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked and the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come and do what you will with me. With that, the fire was lit and Polycarp was martyred for his faith in Christ. Even in his advanced years, he was faithful to God until death. May it be so with all of us. We can be faithful to him only because he is committed to being faithful to us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. It's so evident to us that David, the psalmist, found great comfort just in your righteousness. He found comfort in your strength, in your faithfulness, in your commitment. Lord, may we come to know you better and better, and because of that, find that you are indeed our rock of refuge. Thank you for the elderly among us. Oh, Lord, encourage them with your faithfulness and help them to see again that their age is a gift and that their presence among us is a gift to this church. Use them. Hear their prayers. Bless their testimonies. Prove yourself faithful to them in all of the infirmities and trials that they face. And, Lord, may the rest of us who are not as old as others ahead of us soberly realize we're going to be there really, really soon. And may our knowledge of you prepare us for those days so that we, like Polycarp, will be able to say all these years, God has been faithful to me. I will not be unfaithful to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.